Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to Justification and Justice by Rev. Peter Yonker. It's only two weeks until Advent. Uh, my hospitality series is done, Stewardship Sunday is done, so I have two weeks. So I thought I would do a two-week ser- uh, series on justice. I will preach this week, Christy will preach next week, and a lot of what I'm saying is a distillation of um, Tim Keller's book, Uh, Generous Justice, which I know some of you have studied, which is, I think, a pretty good book. If you want to know more on the topic, you should check that out, Generous Justice. Um, But we're going to start today with Isaiah 58 uh, and the rather startling words of the prophet Isaiah in this chapter. Isaiah 58. Here's what Isaiah says. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion, and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out, and they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commandments of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? And why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen only for a day for people to humble themselves Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, and when you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and the malicious talk, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He'll satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he'll strengthen your frame and you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath, from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way or doing as you please or speaking idle words, Then you will find your joy in the Lord, 
And I will cause you to ride in triumph in the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. This passage never fails to shock me and to grab me and to get a sense of why there's a little bit of shock in it. It helps to know and to understand and to see the people to whom Isaiah is talking. If you really want to hear this passage properly, you've got to see the people to whom Isaiah is talking, and specifically, you've got to understand the religious life of the people to whom Isaiah is talking. What did did the religious life of Isaiah's congregation look like? Well, we have some clues. Verses 2 and 3 talk about that. I'll run through some of what Isaiah tells us. Verse 2 says, day after day they seek me out. Day after day they seek me out. So these are people who are faithful in prayer. They pray day after day, and probably seeking him out includes coming to worship every weekend. So faithful in prayer, faithful in worship. Isaiah also says, they seem eager to know my ways. So that sounds like the kind of people who might be doing a lot of Bible study, studying the Torah, studying the law, getting together and having theological discussions. They love Bible study too. Isaiah talks about on the day of fasting. So these people don't just pray, they fast when they pray. And verse 5 says they wear sackcloth as they fast when they pray. So they don't just do ordinary piety, they go the extra mile, right? Their prayer is more involved than my prayer for sure. And finally it says they seem eager for God to come near to them. So it sounds like eager for God to come near, they want a deep personal relationship with their God. Okay, so regular in prayer, regular in worship, fasting, people who want a personal relationship with their God. These sound like really nice people. If my kids turned out this way, I would be proud. And that's why it is so shocking to hear what God calls these people through the prophet. He says, declare to my people their rebellion. Tell the descendants of Jacob their sins. They are a people who have forsaken the commands of their God. Isaiah calls them rebels. Isaiah calls them sinners. How can these good, decent, praying, worshiping, Bible-studying people be rebels and sinners? Well, I think you know the answer if you were listening to the reading. It's because they're not doing justice. Their warm and robust personal piety is not accompanied by a passion for and the practice of justice. And specifically in our passage, they're not clothing the naked, they're not feeding the hungry, they are not untying the yoke of oppression, and instead they're fighting and exploiting their workers. It's all in the passage. And so Isaiah hammers them and he says, is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice? Isaiah's message is pretty clear. Personal piety needs to be accompanied by justice. Personal piety needs to be accompanied by a passion for social justice. Now, can I confess to you that it makes me nervous to say those last two words? Social justice. Just saying those two words nowadays makes me nervous, and I think many of you know why. 
Because these days, social justice has somehow become controversial. When you say the word social justice, you get put into a certain category. If you become a lover of social justice, you get put into a certain category, and unfortunately, it's a political category. And there's a good reason for that. It's because there are people out there who have relatively liberal social agendas and are crusading for things, and those people have been labeled social justice warriors. You've all heard that term. So if you talk about social justice, you're worried that you'll get associated with those people. And this has even got serious enough that there are ministers, respected ministers, who have said social justice is not in Scripture. Social justice is not in the Bible. We shouldn't be talking about social justice in the church. And all this makes ministers nervous. We worry that if we get up and talk about justice in general or social justice in particular, people will think that we have a political agenda. And this cuts both ways. We're worried that half the people will say, oh boy, he sees things my way, he's on my side, and the other half will say, oh no, he's one of those social justice warriors. It makes us nervous enough that sometimes we think, maybe I'll just preach a nice sermon on prayer or kindness instead. If I'm to be an honest preacher of Scripture, this cannot be. You cannot read Isaiah 56 and not realize, excuse me, Isaiah 58 and not realize that God cares about justice. And the justice which he cares about in this passage, right, is social. It, it is social. It has to do with how you treat your neighbors, the hungry, the naked, the oppressed, your workers. It's a social justice. So I think it's fair to say that, that God has a passion for social justice in this passage. And it's not just this passage. This is something you see in both Testaments all through Scripture. Zechariah 7, God says to the people, when you fasted and mourned, were you really doing it for me or was it all just a show? Was all your piety really for me or was it just a show? And now I'm quoting, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. I don't want piety without justice. Isaiah 1, I'm tired of your worthless assemblies, tired of your fancy worship services. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Wash and make yourself clean, learn to do right, seek justice. Defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. Don't show me piety if you're not going to do justice to Jesus feels the same way as his father. Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give me a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, you know, sort of minute tithing that's mostly for show. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You do piety, you neglect justice. I want both. And finally, in Mark 12, Jesus skewers those master Bible study leaders, those teachers of the law. And he says, you know, these people make lengthy prayers for show, but then they devour 
widows' houses, and they shall be most severely punished. Great showy piety without justice makes me mad, says the Lord. Now, even as I recognize what I think is this inescapable biblical truth, let me offer a couple of caveats about how we think about justice. First, this is important, not everything that our society calls social justice is biblical social justice, right? God's justice is not necessarily like everybody else's justice. God's justice has a certain character, comes from his character, and it's revealed in his word. So there are people out there with different philosophies and different beliefs, and their justice may overlap with our justice, but it won't be exactly the same as our justice. And even within the church, right, the Bible's a really complicated book, so we, we read it and we interpret it, and we don't always agree exactly on, on, on what justice should look like, even as Christians. And that means just because somebody out there calls something social justice that you vehemently disagree with, don't throw out the concept. Just because someone out there is, is lauding social justice and you think, well, I don't believe in that, that's no reason to say that social justice in itself is bad. It's not bad, it's biblical. Second, even if everyone at the grave would magically agree on exactly what Christian justice looked like, and wouldn't that be wonderful? If we would magically agree, we would still disagree on how to implement that justice. So maybe we would all agree that health care for poor children is something that every poor child in this society should have. Poor children, innocent children, should all have access to health care. See, we agreed on that. We might still disagree on the means to implement that. So some of us may say, you know, private sector solutions are the best way. Some of us would say, no, no, government solutions, and some of us would, would have some combination of the two. And, and that's fine. That, that'll, that's, that's what it means to be in a society to try to figure out how to do this best. What's non-negotiable, though, is a passion for the well-being of those children. What Isaiah and what Jesus leave no room for is a kind of faith that's about prayer and great worship services, but never flows out to the inequities of society. Here's a positive way. I'm sorry for all the guilt. Here's a positive way to state what our passage is talking about. Scripture always holds together justification and justice. Scripture always holds together our personal justification and justice. Justification, if you grew up in the church, you know this, this word. Justification is the word we talk about uh, that talks about how God made right our hearts and made us right with him, right? When we're right with God, we are justified. In the Old Testament, as Bob said, that happened through animal sacrifices. In the New Testament, we say it happened through the sacrifice of Christ. We're justified with him. And the idea is, if God justifies our crooked, undeserving heart, and freely by his grace makes that straight, that having experienced that justification, we will want to go out into the world and find some crooked things to make straight with the same kind of love and the same kind of grace. Justification, naturally, because of what it is, flows out into justice. And this is God's pattern throughout Scripture. 
this, this justification flowing into justice. Ten Commandments. Bob read them earlier. What are the first four commandments about? Personal piety, relationship with God, love the Lord your God above all other gods, do not make any graven images, remember the Sabbath day. They are all more about this vertical relationship. But then how do the commandments all end? They go horizontal, right? Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Personal piety flowing out into concern for neighbor and justice is built into the structure of the commandments. It's the pattern of Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant, right? The, 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 the servant owes an enormous debt that he couldn't pay in 10 lifetimes, and the king forgives him that debt, and the king forgives him that debt, hoping that he'll walk out into the world and become a forgiving person. And when he doesn't, the king is, is angry. The justification, the forgiveness, meant to flow out into justice. Same concern in James. James famously says, faith without works is dead. And in James chapter 2, he specifically identifies the kind of works that show faith is dead, and they are neglecting the poor and treating the rich with favoritism. Again, same pattern. Justification flowing out into justice. It's important to know that the dependency goes both ways. James says, faith without works is dead. We can also say that works without faith is problematic. A passion for social justice without a heart of love redeemed by grace can also go wrong in all sorts of ways. When justice has no love in it, it becomes dangerous, right? If justice is only coming from guilt, then it's just a burden, then it's just a chore. If justice only comes from anger, outrage, a proud certainty about my cause in the world, and a proud certainty that those are my enemies and need to be crushed, which a lot of justice has done out of that kind of motivation today, right? then what do we end up with? We end up with arguments, we end up with outrage, we end up with justice becoming an easy excuse for vengeance. But when your heart has been justified by Jesus, your pursuit of justice has an entirely different spirit. What was God's motivation for the justification of our heart? Was it rage? It was love. For God so loved the world. An inexhaustible grace that is new every morning. That's, that's what justified our hearts. Jesus Christ, the only just man who ever lived, the only innocent man who ever lived, pouring himself out so that our crooked, mangled heart could be made new. When that grace is the foundation of your justice, you want to go out into the world and find just a couple of crooked things and you want to try to make them straight. And even if you don't succeed, even if your attempts to bring justice in this world fall flat, which they often do, at least your attempts are a sign of God's love in this world. And your love may fail and your justice may fail, but his love will not. His love will make all things just and all things new. I want to close this morning with a story that shows 
the powerful connection between a justified heart and the doing of justice and how true justice flows from a justified heart. And this Martin Luther King story. And I didn't know this story until this summer when I read a book by Charles Marsh, but apparently when Martin Luther King started out the civil rights movement, his heart wasn't in it. He was sort of half-hearted in his beginning. He was a young preacher, about 26 years old, and he was kind of in love with the good life. Uh, he was making a really good salary. He had a nice, comfortable middle-class life. He had a big church. He had a new daughter. And he, uh, all this activism, he felt, threatened his sort of middle-class stuff. And he, he wasn't sure he was into it. He got pushed into it because he was a minister. But when he started down the road of civil rights, he started to get resistance and death threats. And then one night in his kitchen, after getting a death threat for like five days in a row, he looked over the little bassinet with his daughter lying in it. And he realized that um, he wasn't sure he was up for this. He wasn't sure that he wanted to give up all his good stuff. And he wasn't sure that he had the strength. And so in that kitchen, he prayed, I'm quoting, Lord, I confess that I'm weak. I'm faltering, I'm losing my courage, I'm at the end of my powers, I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And then King said, in his kitchen he heard a voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the world. At that moment, by his own account, something shifted in King. That he knew his heart was not his own, but it belonged to Jesus Christ. And he knew the desires of his heart were not his little middle-class desires. They were the eternal desires of the Lord of the kingdom. And he said, from that day forth, my uncertainty disappeared, and I was ready to face anything. Your heart and my heart belongs to this same God. It's been justified by this same amazing grace. So filled with his love and filled with his grace, may we go out into this world and find a couple of crooked things and try to make them straight. Thanks be to God. Lord, we know that we are not deserving of the grace that we have received. And every time we think of our own justification, we know that... Um, you, out of your great riches, have blessed us and made us rich beyond our imagining. Lord, may that fill us with joy and may that fill us with grace and may it fill us with a, a strong willingness and a courage to meet the broken things of this world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.